0: Our Bible reading uh, this morning is from John chapter 19 verses 17 to 30 and uh, you've got a copy of this in your worship booklet if you don't have your Bibles with you and Salome is going to read that for us. Thanks Salome.
1: Carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign made and put it on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts apart for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see who gets it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says, they divided my clothes among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus, were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. And he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm fasty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Then, bowing his head, he gave up his spirit.
0: Thanks. Now we've been uh, travelling along the road from the garden to the garden city for some time now and in a sense the whole story has been leading up to this point today where we get to Jesus' crucifixion. Now last week at the church camp we looked at what the crucifixion means for us personally and how all of us have to uh, kind of wrestle with it and, and deal with it um, and make a decision as to whether or not we would submit to Christ as our Lord or not Uh, and today I want to look at the crucifixion in the sense of what it meant to the larger story that the Bible has been telling from the very beginning and I specifically want to focus on that very last sentence Jesus said before he died it is finished and I want to ask the question what is the it that was finished what was finished and to help us answer this question, we, we need to understand what uh, the word finished here means. It, it, it's, a, um, I guess fundamentally, the word underneath this is an accounting term. It, it means paid in full. And so I want to ask the question, what is the it that has been paid in full? And kind of what's the scope of the it that is finished? What, uh, what is Jesus referring to there? And as we'll see, that there, are, there are actually three different it's uh, that are finished this morning. And the first of these is that the, the need to fulfill the law was finished. So the need to fulfill the law was finished. Now, Jesus came to fulfill God's law. He says so himself in Matthew 5:17, where he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. And the law that Jesus came to fulfill is, um, in a sense, everything that the Old Testament is written about, but it's even more than that. It is God's requirement for people to live entirely without sin, for, for them to live a perfect life, to obey God perfectly, to serve Him only, never to sin. That is what Jesus came to fulfill, God's requirement for a perfect life to be lived. And when we think back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that is actually how it was. Before the fall of sin, that is how they lived. They always lived within the confines of God's law uh, but now it is impossible for us to live this way. None of us actually have the capacity to go throughout life never missing the mark, never failing to be perfect, never not sinning. In fact, Even in our language, we reflect this. We say things like, I've made a mistake, but I'm only human. We think that it's part of our human condition that we are, by nature, imperfect beings. That's how we learn, that's how we grow. And yet Jesus never sinned, and God actually requires us to live a life free of mistakes, free of sin. Now, friends, it's important for us to understand this because we we think that, that, I guess, going wrong is part of our nature, it's part of our broken, uh, sinful lives that we've inherited from our parents. But we were not created to be broken. We were created not to do wrong things or sinful things, we were created to work the earth and be in a relationship with God. But because of sin, our work is imperfect And our relationship with God is broken. And all of humanity is broken in this way and and in a way we're far more broken than we could ever imagine. Romans chapter 3 tells us this. It says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. For all have turned away and alike become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. And just to pick three different ways in which we are unrighteous, uh, just as an example to illustrate the point, we are greedy, we are selfish, self-centered beings, and we're cruel. So greed runs our world pretty much as much as anything. We are governed by our passion for money. Money is, uh, is such, so ingrained in our culture that we cannot, be helped, uh, cannot help but be influenced by it. Karl Marx actually wrote about this. He says that the corruption of money is really the cornerstone of our society. He calls it the visible divinity. It is the God that we can see and worship. It has this tangible sense of power and our greed has corrupted us. And so so all of us, to some extent, are a bit greedy. But more than that, I think we're all pretty self-centered and selfish. How do we know this? How do we see this in our day-to-day lives? How do we know that we are self-centered? Because of road rage. I mean, how dare that person cut me off? That gets me so angry. If someone drives too slow for our liking, oh my goodness, get out of my way. We get so frustrated, why? Because at its root, I believe that my time is more important than that person's time. How dare they inconvenience the Almighty Me. But we also know that we're self centered. How? Because of selfies. It is estimated that we take about 40 billion selfies each year. That is more than eight times the number of people, sorry, more than five times the number of people that exist on the earth. And the camera, which was invented to capture the beauty out there, has literally been turned around to capture the image of ourselves we, so that we can look at us. We are self-centred beings. And I know that we are self-centred beings because what is the first thing that you looked up on Google Earth when it was first released? It was your house. You could go anywhere on Earth in the blink of an eye and you went home. We are terribly self-absorbed people. We're greedy, we're self-centred but we are also uh, cruel. You know, greed and self centeredness are kind of acceptable sins in our culture but we are also cruel it is a recognized fact that humans are the cruelest of the beings that live on earth at least of the ones we can see virtually every philosopher has thought about the inherent cruelty of humanity and we see this through the big events you know like the holocaust the genocides of people and so on but we also see that in the playground at school, don't we? That is perhaps the place where cruelty is most practiced in our society. And you will say, oh yes, but that's just kids being kids. Adults don't behave like that, but I would say that's exactly my point. Our cruelty is part of our nature. It, hasn't, it doesn't need to be taught. We know it as children. We can express it even as little ones. Cruelty has to be taken out of us and trained out of us because we are inherently cruel things. The Russian ph- uh, philosopher and writer Dostoevsky wrote, people sometimes speak about the bestial cruelty of mankind, but that is terribly offensive to the beasts because no animal could ever be as cruel, so artfully and artistically cruel as man. So we're greedy, we're self-centered, we are crueler than the beasts. And yet in our heart of hearts, I don't think we want to be like this. We realize when we are honest with ourselves that we are made for more than that. We are created in a sense for greatness. We are there to reflect the greatness of God. We were made in His image to to reflect what He is. We're supposed to show His love, not cruelty. We're supposed to shine a light on His glory, not our own. And we are supposed to celebrate His generosity, not our greed. We were made to reflect God and in so doing live up to the moral law that He requires us to keep. And yet no person ever, apart from Jesus, has managed to live up to that standard. And so on the cross when Jesus says, it is finished, what he is saying is, I have done that for you. My work of living a perfect life for your sake is completed. And the beauty of the Gospel is that when we trust in Jesus' life, when we trust that He's taken our sins on His shoulders, that He died in our place, um, what does God do for us then? He takes that perfect life that Christ lives, lived and He clothes you in it. He puts it on you kind of like a jacket so that when He sees you, when He looks at you, a believer... He sees the perfect life that Christ lived. Now, why is that important? Because at the end of all time, when we stand before God to be judged, what are we being based or judged on? What's the basis of God's judgment? It's actually works. Now, it sounds odd that we are standing before God based to be judged based on our works but that's what the bible says yes it's true we cannot earn our salvation that's a hundred percent true and if you stand before god with only your own works it's not going to go well for you but it is by works that you will be judged they will either be your works or they will be jesus's works but you will be judged by works and so when you get to the proverbial pearly gates and you stand in judgment before god Whose works do you want to be judged by? Your own? Really? Or do you want to be covered by Jesus' perfect life? When you trust in the work of Jesus, God looks at you and He doesn't see the the kind of filthy rags of your life, but He sees the majesty of Jesus' perfect life wrapped around you, given to you, as if that life were your own. And when you trust in him, you can rest in that. You don't have to try and keep working at being saved. As the old hymn says, you can come and lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Because the work of earning salvation is finished. Jesus has finished it. That's the first it that was finished. Perfect life that's that need, needed to enter into a relationship with God, that's, that's finished. But well, the second it that's finished is uh, the need to atone for the bad life that we have lived. So we get a good life, but there's this atoning thing that needs to happen for all the failings we've, we've um, you know, done in this life. So, the second it that's finished is the need to atone. Now, what does it mean to atone for something? To atone for something is to make amends, to pay for something, to make it right. It is, um, it is one of the few compound words we have in English, and it literally means at one meant. So, it makes things at one. So, the atonement is to make us at one with God, okay? So, in essence, it is doing something to make up for something that has been done wrong, Now, if you've been paying attention in the story from the garden to the garden city, you will know and remember that atonement was achieved for the people of Israel through the uh, priestly system. You had to come and sacrifice animals to pay for your sins. You had to slaughter an animal as a way to say sorry for God for what you had done wrong. Blood had to flow. Life had to be given in order to cover you. And in fact the Jewish people have a special day for this called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It is a day during which everyone in Israel is to offer, was to bring a sin offering before God. That would pay for their sins, would cleanse them from their sin and again make them at one with God. And so every year, year after year, this Day of Atonement would happen. You would, that, that it would happen year after year, every year, because people were still sinful they kept on doing wrong, so their sins would be wiped out, but they would accrue a debt over the next year. And when Jesus dies, this all changes. That is why we don't celebrate the pre- or live and worship God according to the priestly system, because it is finished. This repetitive need to atone has been completed. When Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, what He is also saying is that I have atoned for the sins of the world and anyone who believes in Jesus will be made right with God. The sacrificial system is done with forever. There's no more need for a sin offering. Jesus was the sin offering. There was no more need to slaughter an animal because Jesus was slaughtered in our place. There was no more need to shed innocent blood because Jesus' innocent blood was shed. And there was no more need to pay for our wrongdoing because Jesus paid the ultimate price. Our need to atone is finished everything the old temple system stood for was done the tabernacle which held god's presence in the middle of the camp was finished the curtain that kept god's presence from the people was torn up uh, because they would no longer be zapped when they got into god's presence because their need to atone was finished the sacrifices the blood that had to be shed for the sins of the people all of that was finished because instead of an animal bearing the symbolic wrath of God against sin, being slain in our place, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, the sacrificial lamb. God's anger for sin was poured out on him. I remember back to Egypt when the people of Israel had to be saved out of the land of slavery. What had to happen for that? If you wanted to be saved, you had to slaughter a lamb without defect and smear the blood on the doorposts of your house. Now, when the angel of the Lord came through then and he saw the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over that house. And the message was, if there was no blood, then there was no life. But have you ever wondered, why did God choose this as the sign for the Israelites? Why was it that there needed to be blood on the doors of their houses? I think it is because when Israel left out of the land of slavery, what did they have to do? They had to pass through the blood. They had to symbolically walk through the cleansing blood that was on their doorposts. Now at the crucifixion here, which happens during the Passover feast, the same thing happens. Jesus comes to fulfill what the, exper- the Israelites experienced all those years ago in physical form. He now comes to fulfill spiritually for all of us. To exit out of the land of slavery, not to Egypt, but to sin, we have to pass through the door of his blood. That is how at one happens. And where there is no blood, there is no life only eternal death and damnation. And so when Jesus cries, it is finished, he is saying everything the sacrificial system was supposed to do, every animal that was slaughtered that it pointed to, all the way back to the beginning of the Passover, it all pointed to this moment, here and now, and it is finished. The story we have been telling for weeks and weeks and weeks finds its fulfillment here it is finished friends you and i do not have to pay for our sins because jesus has paid for it you and i don't have to pay for our sins because he has taken it on his shoulders and even though he was innocent he willingly died and suffered in our place and so our need to atone with god is finished and so when jesus hangs on the cross He bears the weight of the sin of every believer, taking it all on until the full measure of God's wrath was poured out on him. And only once the full extent of that was poured out does he say, it is finished. Have you ever noticed that? In verse 30, Jesus says, it is finished. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. He was alive and conscious and awake through it all until the very last moment and only once the work was done did he die and give up his spirit because it was finished. That means you and I don't need to strive to atone for our own sins anymore because he has already done it. That's the second it that was finished. So the need for a perfect life is finished, the need to atone is finished. And I want to focus briefly now on the last it. Our separation from God was finished. Now, in many places in the Bible, uh, it tells us that our sin causes this this broken relationship between us and God. There's the separation that happens. Um, (coughs) Perhaps the clearest place is in Isaiah 59, verse 2, where it says... Your iniquities are separating you from God and your sins have hidden His face so that He does not listen. Now, our sin, our iniquity, the things we do wrong, create this disconnection between us and God. And the problem is that God had made us, as human beings, with this inbuilt need to have a relationship with Him. That is why, in the Garden of Eden, we used to walk and talk with God in the cool of the day and as we've seen every attempt to fix this separation throughout this whole series uh, as we've seen every attempt to fix that gap is kind of failed in some way you see god couldn't let moses see his face otherwise moses would be destroyed and as god traveled with the israelites it was as either a cloud or a pillar of fire above them but not in their midst because they would be consumed And when someone accidentally touched the Ark of the Covenant which was supposed to hold God's presence without properly going through an atonement ritual, that person got zapped and died. And when God's tabernacle, his dwelling place, was in the middle of Israel's camp, it was only behind several layers of curtain and only the high priest could enter that and only once a year and only with much fear and trembling and only after he had atoned for his own sins every space throughout the Old Testament that was supposed to mend this problem of our separation with God that was introduced way back in Genesis 3, uh, every attempt was incomplete or failed. And yet when Jesus dies, when he cries out, it is finished and gives up his spirit, what is it that happens? We read in Mark fifteen thirty-seven. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. And then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see this separation that existed between us and God from the Garden of Eden, that separation ends. The curtain is torn in two and it is finished. And what good news that is for us. How can I get back to God? How can I bridge the chasm that exists between him and me because of my sin? How can I have a relationship with my Creator? Jesus says, he gives us the answer. He says, that chasm is finished because of his work on the cross. He has made the bridge between us and God. And all we have to do is walk across it in faith. Our separation from God is finished. There's a great um, new worship song, it's relatively new, uh, but it's a little bit too rock and roll for our congregation. Uh, it's called It Is Finished by Dustin Kensrue, And he says there, and I'll finish with this, he says that there is no deed that can redeem us, there's no right or magic word, it's only by the work of Jesus that our salvation can be secured. There's no sacrifice to offer, there's no penance to complete. Freely come and drink of living water, without money come and feast. It is finished, he has done it. Let your weary heart rejoice. Our redemption is accomplished. Raise a shout with ragged voice and go bravely into battle knowing that he has won the war it is finished lift your head and weep no more let every sinner rejoice and hear the dying victors cry raise up your voice and sing it out through earth and sky because it is finished he has done it let that be our battle cry let's pray Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come and reflect on the work that you have done on our behalf on the cross. We thank you that our need to live this perfect life, even though we don't have the ability to do it, is finished because you have lived the perfect life for us. We thank you that our need to atone for our sins has been completed by Christ on the cross and that he has borne the consequences of our sin, taken your wrath on his shoulders. We thank you for that. And we thank you, Lord, that our separation from you, uh, that our, yeah, the, the need to, um, to come back to you in some ways has been bridged by Jesus. That through the cross, the curtain was torn, and our separation uh, with you is also finished. Thank you that once again we can have uh, a relationship with you where we can walk and talk with you in the cool of the day. And oh Lord, we look forward to the day when what we see now in part, we will see in fullness as we again physically too can come and talk and walk with you in the kingdom to come. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.